0: first Sunday of the month, which means a few things. It means we'll be celebrating the Lord's table immediately following uh, the end of our service today. And uh, if you uh, did not make plans for that in your schedule, um, we will have a song at the very end and you can uh, depart then, but we would love for you to stay. We take 10 or 15 minutes to take the Lord's table and you're welcome to stay with us if that's what you would like to do. It's also the time where we'll study our monthly prayer passage. This year what we've been doing is studying a prayer passage the first Sunday of every month and then praying that for each other on Mondays for the rest of the month. So I hope you'll take careful notes so that you will know how to pray for your brethren this month. Also, it is time to switch our prayer partners. And tomorrow you'll be getting an email on your new prayer partner and I hope you'll uh, get together with them and enjoy praying with them. Let's pray and then we will start our study this morning. Father... Give us grace to know this passage and know your mind to give us grace uh, to understand exactly what you're trying to tell us. You're the God of peace. You're the great God of peace who's removed every hurdle that stood between a full relationship between us and you. And though we harbor many suspicions and fears in our hearts about what following you might mean, you just knock them all over and throw your arms wide and embrace us as your own. Help us to see it that way and to move toward you in faithfulness and gratitude. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, I have a little story for you. When I was a grad student, I was probably 23, 24 years old, I had a, a, a class called Church History, and the man who taught this class was old. My son Schaefer the other day called me old, and my heart ripped in two. But I can tell you that this gentleman was really, truly old. It was his last year of teaching, as a matter of fact, and I think he could be considered elderly. He was a venerated man, a brilliant man. I had deep respect for him. One day, children, as I sat down to get ready for class, this teacher came in the room. Now, children, I did not think that he knew my name. He didn't know anybody's name. He gave us numbers. I was number two. Okay? So I didn't think he knew my name. I sat down. He came in. He looked right at me. And he said, Mr. Baker, I need to have a word with you. Now, children, what do you think went through my mind? My first thought was, he knows my name. My second thought was, oh, no, what have I done? (laughs) So the great venerated Dr. Panozian came and leaned his head, leaned his mouth one inch from my ear and began whispering to me. He said, Mr. Baker, I have a heart condition. It's been giving me a little trouble lately. And it's possible that I will have an episode and that I will pass out in front of all of you. If that happens, I have a vial of medicine in my front left pocket. Remove the vial, take out a pill, and put it under my tongue. Can you do that, Mr. Baker? And I said, yes, sir. (laughs) And he said, front left pocket. And I said, yes, sir. He goes, one pill under my tongue. And I said, yes, sir. And he got up to walk away, go back to the podium, and he stopped. He turned on his heel, came back to me, got one inch from my ear again, and said, Front left pocket. Now, children, for the next hour and 15 minutes, what three words do you think kept going through my mind? Front left. Those were his last words. And today, in Hebrews chapter 13, we're encountering some other last words. The man telling us these last words has been speaking to us for 13 chapters. We haven't been studying them as a church, but perhaps you've read the book of Hebrews. This is a venerated man. We'll talk about him in a moment. Everybody loves and respects him, and he has one last word that he wants to tell these Hebrew Christians. And he tells it to them here. Now may the God of peace who brought you again, who brought again the, uh, from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great Shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good to do as well. Those are his last words. He wants these to be the enduring words that we take with us on our Christian journey. These are probably the last words he'll have with these people in his life, the last words that they'll hear from him, and what he wants echoing through their minds, what he wants them repeating over and again, just like I thought, front left pocket. He wants them to be thinking these words. Now let's get a little context so we understand this prayer as best we can. The man writing these words, we don't know who he was. He's nameless. But we do know that he was known to the people he was writing, to whom he was writing. It's possible that because of great persecution, he wanted to keep his name out of it. And he wanted to protect the people who'd be reading this letter the authorities, if they didn't have a name in it, might not be able to track him down or hold them guilty for harboring some sort of unapproved statewide mail that could be considered negative. He was protecting them by not giving his name, unfortunately for us, or fortunately in God's providence. His identity is lost to us, though the people who were reading this letter knew exactly who was writing it. We will make no effort to try to decide who he was, though many scholars have tried. We will simply refer to this person as the author of Hebrews or the writer for the rest of our study today. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to, well, the Hebrews. But for those of you familiar, unfamiliar with the Bible, let me explain very quickly what this means. The book of Hebrews is a New Testament book. New Testament is opposed to the Old. The Old prepares us to meet the New Testament. It prepares us to meet the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, which he calls the new covenant in my blood. In a little bit, we will observe the elements. Jesus is the representation of Jesus' broken body, the representation of Jesus' shed blood. And Jesus said, this is the new covenant. And so, the Old Covenant prepares us for the New. The first people to accept this New Covenant, by and large, were Jewish people. Now, this would change over time. But when this letter was written, if you had a population counter, likely the majority of Christians in the world also happened to be Jewish. Now, over time, the Gentiles would quickly outnumber Jews. But the first people to embrace the Christian religion were Jewish people. And those Jewish people got kind of a double whammy of persecution from the nation of Rome. They were persecuted because they were Jews, and they were persecuted because they were Christians. And these persecuted people, these persecuted Jewish Christians got scattered and pressured, and there was all sorts of trouble descending upon them. I read this week of a Ugandan Christian teenager who converted to Christianity, and his father enslaved him and beat him nearly to death simply because he had asked Jesus to save him from his sins. These Jewish people had turned from Judaism to Christianity, to biblical Christianity. And as a result, their employment was threatened, their family was threatened, their support structure was cut off. And there was a great amount of temptation for them to turn their back on Jesus and go back to their old Jewish ways for the sake of all of the support that they could have. And this known but nameless author is encouraging them, stick with it, for Jesus is better than anything that you can possibly go back to. That's the argument of the book of Hebrews. This writer has been arguing for 13 chapters, don't go back, don't go back to those things, don't go back to Judaism. Hebrew Christians, stick with Christ because he's the greatest thing you can possibly have. And he closes with this prayer of benediction. Now let's look at this prayer very briefly in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. As you look at verses 20 and 21, I want you to know that it's one sentence. Okay? As Dirk read that in our reading. Now may the God of peace who brought you from the dead, who brought again from the dead, rather, our Lord Jesus, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's one that's one sentence. <laughs> As a mouthful, isn't it? It may not be as long as some of Paul's sentences, but let's call it a long and complicated sentence. And it's our goal this morning to understand that sentence such that we can begin praying it as a body for one another. For us to do that, for us to pray this sentence knowingly for each other, we have to do two things. We have to, number one, understand the prayer So we kind of have to break this prayer apart, and then we have to explore some of its ramifications. So that's sort of how we'll break this down. We've got the prayer and the ramifications, and I hope you'll follow along with me that way. Let's look at kind of the basics of the prayer to start. The basics of the prayer is this. What this prayer is answering, what is God doing right now? What is God doing right now? Let's just find the subject of this complicated sentence. You might have seen several nouns in there. God, the Lord Jesus Christ, us, we, you. Who's who? Well, the subject is God. God is the subject of this prayer. Now, may the God of peace. Now, I have up here that the subject is God of peace. And I realize that technically, grammatically speaking, of peace is not part of the subject. But it kind of is, because there's something special that the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate here, and that of peace is so consequential, we really need to keep that right on the forefront of our mind. So who's the subject? The God of peace. Now, what does every sentence need, everybody? What does every sentence need? A subject and a what? a verb. So what's the verb? What's the verb? There's a lot of verbs in there, right? Who raise Jesus from the dead, who makes certain things to happen. Well, look at verse 21. The first word of verse 21 is the verb. Everything else is just flowing off of that, and it's the word equip. May the God of peace equip. What does it mean to equip? We use that word equip, equipment, whatever, we use that a lot. This word is a it is I don't I don't know that I don't know that the English word equip really brings it out. Let me explain how this word is used in other contexts. Um, do you remember when Jesus was walking around on the earth and he saw some fishermen and they were doing something. They were mending their nets. You can imagine how important that net would be to commercial fishermen. It would be so frustrating to find where all the fish are. You go out in the middle of the night, you follow the charts and the the movements, and you, you get it right, and you land on the school of fish, and you drop your net on it, and there's a hole in your net, and half the fish leak out. Half the fish swim to safety, never to be caught again. Your equipment was incredibly important, so half the job of fishing was making sure that the lines weren't knotted, and that the nets were in good working order. That's the word, mending, equipping, completing. This word is frequently used for instructing simple people or completing something that was broken. The, the idea in each of these words is that there is something, there is something that is working suboptimally. It's it's broken. It's functioning, but it's not there. And you come along, and you fix it up, you mend it, you complete it, you do something to it, and suddenly it's working to its fullest capacity and capability now. That's the meaning of this word. May God, may the God of peace do that for you. May the God of peace equip you, complete you, fix you. Make you whole. Bring you up to function in this optimal way. May the God of peace equip you. And what's our direct object? Well, it's you. But in this case, it's you all. It's uh, specific. In fact, if you want to write in your Bibles, you all, may the God of peace equip you all. That all is there in Greek. And you might want to put it there. He's praying this for All the Christians, all these Hebrew Christians who've been persecuted and scattered, and he's praying that God would take them and mend them and help them and complete them and perfect them. He wants all Christians everywhere to undergo this equipping of God, equipping of the God of peace. So let's put these kind of basics together. We've got the skeleton. Let's put the skeleton together so we can let the writer then fill the rest of it out. Put together, the prayer is built around this statement. The God of peace equip you all. The God of peace equip you all. And so when we begin praying this prayer for each other this month, these words ought to resonate clearly. May the God of peace equip us all. May the God of peace complete us all. May the God of peace mend us all. That's the core of our prayer. Now, as you might imagine, the author here has lots of things that sort of fill out this idea. Let's explore those now. He's going to talk about the method that God uses to equip us. The method that God uses to equip us. Okay, And it's going to answer the question, how is God equipping us? What is God doing? He's equipping us. How's he doing that? And he answers that question here. Number one, I want you to know, and the writer of Hebrews wants you to know, that God has already equipped you. God has already equipped you. He's already done it. Look right here. He says, The God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, By the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you. Okay? What is God saying here? God chose to equip you when he completed his eternal purposes. Let's look at this phraseology here. He says, who brought Jesus from the dead, again from the dead, the good shepherd, by the blood of the eternal covenant, of the eternal covenant. Now, how many of you, when you read that, saw the word eternal, but thought something more like new or blessed? How many of you noticed that word eternal? Eternal? What the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. Before time began, before you began, before any of this happened, God, in his eternal counsels, decided to equip you. God decided to do that in the counsels of eternity past. He's also telling us that this determination to equip you was ratified, as it were. It was completed, as it were, when he resurrected the good shepherd from the dead. When he resurrected the good shepherd from the dead. Now, in all the book of Hebrews, the first 13 chapters, the first 13 chapters, no mention is made of Jesus as shepherd. Also, I forgot to point out, it says that God led forth. It's not the usual word for resurrection. It says that God is equipping you, God already equipped you, when he led your good shepherd from the grave. He led your good shepherd from the grave. Now, this has been several years now. I was out running on one of these mountain trails. You see some odd things. You see some bizarre trails when you run in Utah in the woods. One day I was running and suddenly I heard a bleeding lamb. No kidding. That's the first for me. I'd never heard anything like that. I thought maybe I was hearing things. So I stopped and sure enough, what happened? But the tiniest little newborn lamb Came running up to me, and nuzzled right up to my knee like it want, like it was a little peppy puppy and wanted to be petted. I'm in the middle of the woods. I was like, "What am I supposed to do with this?" <laughs> so I started walking, and what did the lamb do? Well, it followed. I started jogging, the lamb followed. I started running. That lamb followed me for probably a half mile. Just following, following, following. Until finally it just got tired and I don't know what happened to the lamb. Lambs, there's something about lambs that instinctively follow. Our shepherd both follows and leads. He followed the Lord right up out of the grave and we follow him out of it too. The writer of Hebrews says, God equipped you. God already equipped you when he raised, he led Jesus out from the grave, and now you follow him right out of that. And you walk right out of death, you walk right out of the sin that caused your death, you walk right out of the sins that hold you down and keep you there that have you, He's led you out, and now you can follow him right out into his goodness. He's led you out by this resurrected shepherd whose blood guaranteed God's response. It wasn't our following. It wasn't our work. It wasn't our doing that causes God to move toward us in this equipping way It was the work of Jesus Christ when he came and shed his blood on the cross that so motivated God. It guaranteed that he would move toward you and equip you and bring you free from death and bring you into a relationship with himself so that he can equip you for what? So that he can equip you for something really good. Now let's explore this next one. He continues to equip us. He equipped us. He determined in eternity past to equip us. He ratified that equipping when the good shepherd sealed the eternal covenant with his blood. And he continues right now to equip us. He avails to us every good thing. Let's read verse 21. This is extremely important. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. He equips you with everything good. Now, the Greek preposition here is the word in. And it can mean, it can be translated a lot of different ways. With is a perfectly good translation. The idea is, the idea, if if I said I'm equipping you with something, You might think that if you're a soldier, I'm handing you a weapon. That's not quite the idea. If I were to say I'm equipping you by everything good or for everything good, you would understand that there's this sphere of good that God is bringing you into. That's what we're told God is doing here. He is equipping you not to hold everything good, but to be in a position to receive all that is good, and to take all that is good, and have all that is good. God is equipping you with good, and He's equipping you by creating God pleasing desires. In us, literally means. He's making in us these God-pleasing desires. God is, in a sense, working out what Christ has accomplished. God is working out what Christ has accomplished for us. So let's summarize this before we jump into our ramifications. May the God of peace who led our shepherd from the grave, this is a paraphrase, by the way, this is not... A literal translation. May the God of peace who led our shepherd from the grave continually equip you all as he magnifies Christ in our hearts. God chose in the councils of eternity past to equip you by the blood that Jesus spilled. And now he moves toward you with nothing but good in his hands, and he brings you into the sphere of his goodness. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life, says the Good Shepherd of Psalm 23. And he's bringing you into the sphere of good and he's equipping you to receive it and to do it. He's equipping you in all these many ways. Now there are some ramifications I want us to cover. There's three of them. We worked through all those technicalities to come to these three points. Now friends, friends, I don't often say something like this. But this first point is so foundational to the Christian walk. We have to get this down. Okay, It gets in our way. It gets in all of our ways all the time. It keeps us from becoming Christians to begin with. And it keeps us from progressing in our Christian lives. It keeps us from having all that God wants us to have. It keeps us selfish. Oh, how this keeps us selfish. Here it is. God, in these verses, is trying to dispel every fear that we have toward him. God is trying to dispel every fear that we have toward him. We harbor in our hearts, before we come to Christ as Savior that if we step into Christianity, all sorts of bad is going to start happening to us. We Christians harbor fear in our hearts that if we truly give ourselves over to God, that somehow... God's good is our bad. It's like a tyrant. We've got kings, tyrants, leaders. Generally speaking, their good is our bad. They want stuff, they send their people to kill and be killed for it. Their good is our bad. And so we come to the conclusion in our fear and in our trembling that if we really give ourselves over to the Lord, if we really start following the Lord, some sort of bad is going to start happening to us or that God has sadistic desires at heart, that God wants to put you through the ringer, that God is somehow satisfied by beating down his own, that God is free frustrated or intolerant or god is god is always agitated with us and it's like we can never seem to do it quite right and whatever blessing we get is a sort of backhanded compliment from god and we can never wholly give ourselves over to god because we're worried that the the other shoe's going to drop or the other bad thing's going to happen or that that God is going to put us in a position to suffer no matter what, we harbor suspicions that God is going to pursue his good to our detriment. And this passage steamrolls that notion. What's the subject of this prayer? What's the subject of this prayer? The God of what? Peace. Not the God of vindication. Not the God of judgment. Not the God of wrath or justice. Not the God of righteousness even. Though you can pray on those lines. He says to you, the God of peace. Wholeness. Prosperity. Absence of conflict. This God comes to you with open arms, having already dealt with your biggest problem. He dealt with it in eternity past, and Christ ratified it when he shed his blood. How do you know Christ loves you? How do you know God loves you? He sent his son, his only son, his beloved son, to die sinners and that's all you need to know about this god of peace this god of peace sends to help us the shepherd of the 23rd song or to have the shepherd of the 23rd Psalm. the lord is my shepherd and i shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he restores my soul Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. God is with you. He wants to prepare a table in the presence of your enemies. The psalm closes, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord for God of peace is moving toward you with wide open arms. And the God of peace is reassuring you that his work opens you to everything that's good. You say, well, then why do I suffer? Then why do bad things happen? I can assure you Number one, it wasn't because of your sin. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now therefore not a single condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there's a distinction here. Sometimes God in his grace allows us to live with the consequences of our sins. That wasn't a consequence he gave. It's a consequence we gave brought upon ourselves. I'm talking about those things that you did nothing. Like a believer who's part who stopped at a stop sign with four people in front of them and a person plows into the back of them and hurts them. Why did that happen to me? Well, that had nothing to do with your sin. God is going to use that to bring you into a sphere where you can receive even better and all that's good and all that's great. He has the end of your good in mind. And he is fitting you not for earth but for heaven. The other day we... I swung the kids by our house and it's under construction. And they torn the roof off of it. It looked kind of pathetic sitting there in the sun, just chopped off. Something surprising happened. The kids that were with me, do you know what they did? They cried, all of them. I was like, good riddance, old trusses. <laughs> the kids cried and something was gone gone cool. by saying this world is not my home I'm just a passing through my treasures laid up somewhere beyond the world God isn't fitting us for this world he's fitting us for the next world where we'll spend eternity and God is just whatever we suffer here will be more than made up for on the other side And God is coming to you, the God of peace, with wide open arms, ready to help you, ready to restore you, ready to bring you into a sphere of all that's good. And if this thing has happened to you that is painful, it's a necessary work to avail you to so much more good. God's end purposes are good and peace and love and grace and mercy. And it's out of fear, it's out of suspicion of God, that we draw back from him. Number two, God wants to highlight his sovereign initiative. God formed this bloody covenant in eternity past. God took the lead in resurrecting Christ. And God is working in us all that's pleasing to him. One author said this. His name is Sinclair Ferguson. He said this. He said, Christianity is not something we work to get. Christianity is something that we work out. And that is so clear in this passage. God has done all the work. We take it and run. We take it and move. We take what the God of peace has granted in bringing us into this sphere of peace, and we work toward it. And then last, God elevates our actions to incredible consequence. Think about this, guys. Think about this. The God of peace, who in eternity past decided to raise Christ from the dead by the means of the covenant of the Lamb having been slain before the foundation of the world, equips you unto all good. When God in eternity past decided to do this work for you, He had your good actions in mind. He had your good deeds at heart. He had all that's good that's coming to you in His mind. And so, tomorrow, when the opportunity for good comes your way, no that's incredibly important to God. It's not a passing moment of good. It's not a passing moment of opportunity only. He's trying to work something of eternal consequence in you and for you and by you. God wants to elevate the day-to-day good that we can do, and he wants to bring it to a cosmic level of importance children, that trash, it's not going to grow legs and take itself out to the dumpster. You do that for mom and dad, that's a kind of a small thing, right? You do it for the Lord, suddenly, that has dramatic power. And we need to be praying for these praying this for each other, don't we? The God of peace. Remove all our fears. The God of peace. Remove all our suspicions. The God of peace who brings us into a sphere of good. Some of our people are hurting. They've had things happen to them and they're having a hard time seeing your peace and your goodness. Would you show that to them by and by? We have some people that are tired, maybe even growing weary of doing good, may they see the cosmic importance of the good that you want them to do. We have people in our community who are afraid of you and they run from you and they don't see you as a God of peace. Would you use us to go to them and help them see how peaceful and kind and good you really are? These are the prayers that I hope Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 will prepare us to make. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to pray these prayers for each other. Remove from us the suspicion and the fear that holds us back from knowing you rightly. May we see you as a God's arms stretched wide, full of mercy. May we come to you not bringing any of our own cheap righteousness, but claiming only the blood of Christ, which is sufficient to save us from all of our sins. Now, Lord, as we celebrate that blood in the coming moments, give us mercy to focus on you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.